Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Hello everyone, my name is Tim McDonald. Welcome to Jesus Church. We are really excited to be worshiping with you and opening the scriptures together. Um, We have been on this journey together as a family of becoming like Jesus. In fact, we're right in the middle of a series, a Bible study on that name. Uh, So if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up. We've got men and women around the room who'd like to get a Bible into your hand. If you don't have one, you're welcome to keep this one. And we are going to be jumping into an amazing text. And we're also kind of big believers around here of developing and raising up the next generation of young men and women, uh, pastors, missionaries, kingdom servants, kind of people that are called to kind of step into uh, the work that God has called them to. We really believe in that around here. And I've also been looking for kind of ways to continue to introduce you all to my family as we're kind of moving through this journey together. And so, everybody, I'd like you to introduce you to Duncan, my oldest son. Um, yes, yeah, he is, uh, he's currently studying Bible theology at Attorney Bible College. And um, his lovely bride, Lindsay, is out here in the middle row there. Uh, and they are a part of this journey of, of seeking God and becoming kind of kingdom leaders. And so I've invited Duncan to kind of help on this journey as we unpack a text in Luke 7. So if you've got your Bibles, flip open Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. So far, we have talked about identity. And we, we looked at devotion. We looked at love. Last week, Shelby did an incredible job talking about the idea of practice. And today we're going to dive into a complex idea called faith. I mean, if we're going to become like Jesus, it seems like we need to explore what it means for us to have faith, to walk in faith, to live a life of faith. The thing is, I'm not sure exactly that we always know what we mean when we use the word faith, uh, which is what makes this next story that we're going to look at so valuable. So, Duncan, you want to read the passage out for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would you guys all please stand for the reading of Scripture? This is just a way in which we honor uh, the Word of God and what the Word of God is going to continually do. Luke 7, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders to the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, saying, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard it, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. When the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. We just invite you in this room, not because you're not here, but rather because we want to be more aware of what you're doing today. And so, Father, today, let these words that are spoken from myself and Dad just come from you, not from us. And if there's things that you want to bring to light today, have your way. We love you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, this story from the life of Jesus is an amazing story. And actually, that word amazed in the text is one of only three places in the entire Gospels where it's used to describe Jesus. Jesus was amazed. Uh, it happens here, and then again in a telling of the story in Matthew 8, and then later in another place where it says that Jesus was amazed at the people's lack of faith. The centurion's faith amazed Jesus. And it seems like something that we should pay attention to. And the thing is, is that we all know this, but faith can kind of be a complex, tricky thing for us to get our mind around. When I was uh, in high school, just coming out of high school, uh, there was a family in our church that had a really horrific accident. And a number of people in the car died. And one of them was a young, one, one of the people in the accident was a young man named Trevor. And uh, he was a part of our youth group. He was a friend. He was a good guy, like just loved Jesus, loved people. He was the kind of guy you enjoyed hanging out with. Uh, he was just a good guy. And he, he was in a coma as a result of the accident. And so we, as like a youth group, we just began praying like crazy. Lord, heal Trevor. Lord, heal Trevor. And I remember like days of us like circling up and praying. And then, you know, that growing confidence began to form inside of us. Like, like God is going to heal him. We know it. Like, on the other side of this, he's going to like walk out that door and Jesus is going to get all the glory. It's going to be amazing. A few days later, we got the call and Trevor had passed. And I remember coming out the other side of that conversation, just wrestling, like wrestling with disappointment. Like, God, I, I thought you were going to heal Trevor. I mean, he was such a great guy. He was the kind of guy that you'd you want to heal. Like, I don't understand, Lord. I was disappointed in God. And then I also, as I kind of dug a little deeper, I was kind of disappointed in myself. Like, was my prayers just not potent enough? Did I not have enough faith? Was that the problem? Faith is confusing. We're going to pick up that story a little bit more kind of at the tail end, but I, I just... I want to wrestle a little bit with this word faith because like the word love, it gets thrown around a lot and it can mean different things in different situations. So 
What does it look like to have faith? The Bible makes some pretty amazing claims around faith. What does it mean for us to step into that? So I thought to help unpack a definition to get some clarity, I would call in an expert. Duncan, so when I say faith, what comes to your mind? I appreciate that. I don't think I'm quite the expert, but I do have a couple of thoughts. I think we today have two ways of looking at faith. Um, the first one, and oftentimes this one's understood by the world, is going to be a constructed belief system in which we as individuals put our trust in. And that's due to Western culture and individualism and you know, postmodern and all that you know, boring stuff. But what it has done essentially has equated faith with religion. And this includes a multitude of things. This includes Christianity. This includes Judaism. This includes things as Islam and atheism and politics as well. These are mostly what the world thinks of when, when we talk about faith. But then there's this other understanding of faith. This one is more rooted and practicable. This type of faith is what we see in the biblical narrative as something we possess rather than something we are a part of. Think of stories such as Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14, or Elijah calling upon the Lord to rain fire upon a wet offering during a three-year drought, or even Daniel in the lion's den being delivered by God. These are all examples of a tangible kind of faith. As we come to, as we come to become more like Jesus, we are invited to participate in this same type of faith. The thing is, though, is that sometimes we can like, be content with just knowing the knowledge of that type of faith, yet not being compelled enough to see the mountains move. That's not biblical faith. What do I mean by this? Jesus gives a profound and deep, intimate uh, invitation towards this kind of faith in Matthew 17 with the words, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the kind of faith that Jesus had in mind when he started building his church. And it's the same kind of faith he asks you and me to participate in as we become more like him. Okay. So if you were going to try to like boil it down, what would be your like simple biblical definition of faith then? Another good question. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's necessarily a straightforward equation to faith. I think there's tons of complications. But... Hebrews does offer a pretty clarifying uh, understanding. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The author of Hebrews lays out this straightforward definition in chapters 11, 1. Hebrews points to the second type of faith we talked about. This definition of faith challenges us to trust in something that is not visible or tangible, but rather like a confidence in the hope of God. This idea of what we hope for is actually pointing at a relational dynamic between who we believe God to be. What do I mean by this? Glad you asked. February 2018, I was a young 17-year-old looking down the final stretch of my last couple of months of high school. I had everything figured out. Except there was this daunting question that had crept around for four years. What was I going to do next? one that we all have faced at one point. 
You see, I had this incredible dream to go play college football, and I had orientated my whole life around that single purpose, that goal. I spent countless hours doing that. The last five years had been dedicated to this dream, to be 5'8 and go play college football. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. I had talked to a couple different coaches, and I'd even gotten some small offers to different colleges. They were small colleges, but still, this was the dream, to go play college football. But there was a problem. Earlier that year, I had been reawakened to an amazing God who wanted more of me. I told God, no problem. As long as you do not touch this dream of mine, you can have more of me. Heck, you can have all of me if you don't touch this dream. June rolls around. I'm graduated. The four-year turmoil-filled journey of high school come to an end, and I still didn't know what I was going to do. So I took a camping trip, as you do. Jesus did that, 40 days in the desert, same thing. <laughs> Only to one of the most remote areas on Mount Hood. As I was there with my two best friends, God spoke to me. He called me in the middle of the night and invited me to go on a, on a walk by the lake. He invited me. In that moment, the Lord of all creation met me, with, or met me in what the Celtic Christians used to call this thin space between heaven and earth. I won't go into all the detail, but the Lord in his kindness invited me to, to give all of myself to him, to have hope in him, to have faith that the dreams he had for me were so much bigger than my selfish desires for myself. This was the moment I decided I was going to hope in the God who has paved the ways since the beginning of creation. Just like Hebrews said, I walked in assurance that God is going to answer my prayers and fulfill my dreams in the most unique way possible because he loves me. So what happened? I gave my dreams to God in faith. And then I spent the next year in Australia, living with amazing people who showed me what it looked like to give my whole heart to Jesus. I spent two months in the Solomon. <clears throat> I spent two months in the Solomon Islands, seeing people healed miraculously and seeing restoration to a nation who had been in civil war for two decades. And then I spent time in Uganda with a, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen, and I would later get to see her walk down the aisle. I put my assurance in God. I gave it all to him, my hope in God, and he has been faithful. Don't hear me wrong. There has been many challenges, but it's been well worth it. I've grown in ways I never thought I could, often in the deepest moments of difficulty and pain. I certainly don't have it all figured out, but that's okay. You don't need to have it all figured out if your confidence is, if your confidence is in him. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And this kind of confidence, this like putting your faith in something, it's contrasted with maybe like wishful thinking or maybe what we might call like a blind trust. It's, it's, not, it's not dependent on my perspectives and ideas. See, we want control, don't we? I mean, don't we? We, we want assurance on what we can see, not what we can't see. We we tend to self-medicate our desire for security. We want confidence in what we can see. 
But faith in God is more than that. Our faith in God, it's in, it's in a God who has a better perspective of reality than I do. God can see things in the future, in all of reality, in ways that I just cannot. But he also has this incredible power that I don't have. And it's a kind of power that I can put confidence in. He has perspective and he has power. There's another really helpful passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. What a, what a like point blank statement. Like in our journey to become like Jesus, if we want to please him, if we want to be in his path, we can't even do it without faith. It's essential because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Just simply, you've got to know that God is there and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So again, we believe that God is there in the same way that we know that the chairs that you guys are sitting on are gonna hold you up in the same way that we know that the sun is shining outside behind the clouds. We know he's there. We believe it. And we live our lives in a way that points at that invisible reality, that invisible God. It's not an, it wasn't enough for Duncan to simply believe in his heart like, yes, Lord, I know that you've got good, you know, great plans for me. No, he had to go that next step further. He had to actually make adjustments to how he lived his life to point at that radical encounter with God. I remember, you ha I remember having conversations with you after you made this decision or friends and coworkers who thought you were crazy, you know, stepping into this thing based on faith, based on the fact that God would be your rewarder. And what's amazing is all the incredible things that came as a result of that step of faith, including his lovely bride sitting in the front row there. So it seems like when you pull all of these kind of definitions together, we're trying to boil it down to what it is and we're talking about faith. Faith is first a confidence in the invisible provision of God. So think about it this way. It's like, let's just pretend that, that Duncan is God here for a second. Don't let it go to your head, okay? There you go. So Dun Duncan is God. Duncan is providing and I have to believe in faith, even though I can't see him, that he's there. And that not only is he there, he's there and he sees me, he sees my need, he knows me, he knows me better than I do. He's there. And it's based on my very real hopes and dreams. So it's, it's not like just the ethereal things in my life, like God wants me to have warm fuzzies. No, these are the real parts of my life. The, the person that's sick in front of me, my need for my job or my need for my roommate or, or in school, the class that I'm going to. God is stepping into the very real now of my hopes and dreams. And faith is also based in the not yet. God's like divine purposes, the things that... He knows about reality that I just don't have eyes on. The perspective that he knows about the future, that he knows about the other people that are in my relational spheres, his divine knowledge. So I've got confidence that he's, that he's there, even though I don't see him. And he cares about my very real hopes and dreams, but he also has a divine perspective. And then finally, 
I demonstrate that faith through tangible actions. The things I, I actually show that I believe this stuff by making adjustments to my life. Faith is, is when all four of those things come together in my life. Does that make sense? You guys track it with me? This is what we talk about when we mean biblical faith. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate your help. Thank you, everybody. So with all of that kind of hammered out, let's return back to the text. Let's look again at Luke 7. So we get this incredible little story. Jesus has just wrapped up this amazing sermon. We've been kind of reading through some of it. And, and, and he's entering into Capernaum. And as he does, he's greeted by some Jewish elders who clearly have been looking for him. They've got something that they want to say to them. And there's this local centurion, which would have been a Roman soldier who had command of about 100 other soldiers. And he was a non-Jewish person. He was a non-Jewish man. So he was a Gentile. And these religious elders, these Jewish elders, a part of this community, they knew that he valued this servant so much that was dying that they went to Jesus, this radical rabbi, to say, hey, come and heal him. Come and heal this guy. He's worthy of it. He's worthy to have your touch on his life. There's so many incredible things happening in this first little chunk of this passage. I mean, there's so many things that should not be here. First, you have like these, these elders, these Jewish elders interacting with a Roman soldier. I mean, there was so much animosity between these two groups of people. There must have been something pretty, pretty important, pretty, pretty different about this centurion. They're speaking up on behalf of them, this mercenary who for some crazy reason, is known for his radical generosity, who is, is known for his compassion. He has a servant of his that he cares so much about that he's going to this renegade rabbi to come and heal them. That's, that's how valuable the servant was to the centurion. The elders declare he's worthy, Jesus. He's worthy. Such a crazy collision of cultures. And then we read this. In verse six, he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion first, he has the, the Jewish elders come to him very culturally sensitive of them, of him to send them to Jesus. He's worthy, they declare, but that's not quite the message that the centurion wanted communicated. So he turns around and he sends his friends kind of in a follow-up to come to Jesus and say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I don't even deserve to have you in my home, Jesus. His message is clear. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are the special one, not me. This centurion like elevates Jesus as he lowers himself. Remember from a few weeks back, we were talking about the idea of devotion and I put up like this little mini math equation. I said this, holy awe plus giving Jesus your yes equals devotion. 
this is the centurion. This centurion is devoted, or at the very least, he's on his way to becoming so. There's something about the nature of this man. Maybe it was all of the violence and pain that he had seen and been overexposed to in his life, or or maybe there was something about the Jewish followers in Capernaum that he just was drawn into the, the way that they followed Yahweh, or maybe it was hearing stories about this crazy rabbi that was going around and doing all these remarkable and amazing things. But he says, just say the word, Jesus. What, what bold, courageous faith. Just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. He has confidence in the invisible provision of God. He gets faith. And then as if he felt like he needed to explain himself, he keeps going in verse eight. He says, for I, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I get this, Jesus. I know how authority works, says the centurion. My, my people are extensions of my will. And when I command, they obey, which means, friends, that this centurion, he gets some things about Jesus that nobody else was catching on to yet. He kind of knew who Jesus was. Jesus has the authority to tell sickness to go. And it goes. Jesus has this incredible innate authority to call healing to come, and it comes. Jesus has this supreme authority to command life, and it obeys. Jesus is a worthy commander who seems a lot like God. Verse 9 goes on. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus is amazed. He's blown away. And he wants everyone to know that this is what real faith looks like. Faith that should be emulated. He turns to his crowd, which is probably, turns to the crowd around. It's probably made up of some disciples and some Jewish elders and, and maybe some Pharisees and some of the other bystanders around. And he says, this, this is what great faith looks like, everyone. And the miraculous happens in response to this centurion and his amazing faith in Jesus. It's a powerful story. Before we go too much further, though, I want to draw special attention to the kind of the nature of the character of this centurion. It's kind of three important real aspects that we don't want to glaze over. First, we see in him a man with worthiness. He was 
a man of noble character. Like there was something about his life. He was radically generous, supporting the synagogue, supporting the Jews in the area, finding ways to financially step into the stories of other people. He was compassionate. I mean, nobody cared about their servants. That was kind of the way it was back then. And yet this man cares, this man of authority with power is caring for one of his servants so much so that he's willing to like break all sorts of like cultural barriers and boundaries to go and find healing for this man. And if you were to read the kind of the rest of this passage, you would see that the centurion is contrasted with by the Pharisees. He's, he's so radically different. He's a good man. But second, the second thing that stands out is his unworthiness. Or maybe a, a better way or another way of thinking about it is like his humility. He's a humble man. He honors people of lower social standing than himself. He goes out of his way to care for people that would have been on the fringes of society, connecting to them, caring for them, surrounding them. He, he has this way of honoring people, including Jesus. He has humility. And third, he has faith. And this isn't just the kind of faith that's like in his mind or in his heart. This is a faith that creeps into his actions. It's put into motion at the risk of disappointment or embarrassment. He risks his reputation by crossing ethnic and cultural boundaries. He, he risks looking weak. Remember what he is. He's He's a centurion. A hundred soldiers look to him. In the community, he stands for Roman power. Instead, he runs this risk of being weak, of showing what it looks like to put your trust, faith, in another. And that is the other essential component to faith, isn't it? Biblical faith always, always always involves risk. That's a part of what it means to believe in the invisible. There is going to be risk associated. Too often, I think we try to make like, it into a mental like, exercise. Like Faith is something that we do in our mind. And if we get lucky, we might have something move inside of our heart, but it never gets to the external. I believe that God can do this work, but I'm not going to readjust any part of my life to show that he will do this work. I know, God, that you can move mountains, but I'm okay at this point if they don't move, if you don't want. David Gooding, he says this, faith makes you sure that the future things you hope for and therefore, by definition, do not yet possess are really yours. Did you catch that? The future things you hope for are really yours so that you can learn to count on them as if you already had them. Some things are invisible either because of their nature or because they are as of yet hidden in the future. Faith brings us conviction that they are real so that we count on them as certainties and base our choices and decisions on them and guide our lives by them. 
Faith is when your life trajectory begins to point at something in such a way that people stop, they look at you and say, what's your life pointing at? Because I can't see it. What, what about your life is so directed towards this invisible thing? If, I, if you're sitting out there right now, you look at your own walk with Jesus, is there something in your life that points to the invisible God? Could somebody around you look at you and say, what do you believe in? Now, to be clear, faith is a belief in Jesus, not just in what Jesus can do for me, and this is why we often will describe people as coming to faith when they start following Jesus, right? It's, they're coming into faith. Our initial commitment to follow Jesus is the first bold pledge that we make to our unseen God. But as long as I'm content with faith only being kind of held within the vessel of Tim, as long as I'm content with it just kind of being inside my own heart, what James might call faith without works, it's safe. It's a safe faith. But once I catch a vision of faith moving beyond me, into my community, into my loved ones, into the world in which I live, my faith becomes dangerous and powerful the centurion faith was boldly humble. He put his confidence not in himself or his position, but in Jesus. And, and he didn't embrace his kingdom, this, this Roman powerhouse. Instead, he embraced the kingdom that was to come. His faith was dangerous. The crazy thing about that real faith is that it's, it's kind of multiplying, right? There's a, there's a bit of it that's kind of almost like catchy. When we hear a faith story, it sparks something inside of us. We, we see something moving in a person and we, we kind of want some of that. There's something about faith that's attractive. If any of you've been to any of our seek nights where we share stories of faith, it's, it's exciting, right? You hear something, God's doing something in somebody's life and it just stirs you. You know who does this the best? Kids, don't they? Kids do it the best. We, what, what we might see as like youthful immaturity is this powerful testimony of faith multiplication. Kids, they, they start, start sharing their simple little stories and it's like wildfire. As a part of our Seek Nights, we've actually started doing Youth Seek, Kids Seek in, in the back room at the exact same time. And I've been able to hear from some of our staff team that that when the kids start sharing their story, there's this powerful testimony to the way that God is showing up in the lives of these little ones. And it's just catchy. I wonder sometimes if this is what Jesus meant when he was talking about having a childlike faith. It's catchy to believe in the impossible again to assume that the invisible is as solid as the ground that we walk on just like a kid. I wonder what it would be like if all of us in this room could have that kind of faith for just a single day. What if we woke up tomorrow and tomorrow we just said childlike faith all day today? And what would change in our world? 
I mean, what would change in your immediate spheres? Whose lives would be just impacted by your wonder, impacted by your belief that God can really do what he says he wants to do? What would change in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes? I wonder if we would ever go back to living the old way. I mentioned that there was more to that story I started sharing up front. And I, I'll be honest, after that disappointment, it was like 12 years before I would really pray for anybody to get healing again. It took me so long. I, I mean, I was praying for all sorts of other stuff and I loved God and I, you know, along the way, I'd gone to Bible college, all that kind of stuff. But when it came to healing, <clears throat> the disappointment had wedged itself so deep in my soul. It was like, I just would kind of like step back from the table I found it really hard to pray for healing because I would, I'd been so disappointed. But then I ended up in India with a good friend of mine and we were doing this kind of pastor's conference and there were like four or 500 pastors and their wives and we'd sh shared and taught all day long. And at the end of the time, we invited people to come on up to get prayed for. And we were praying blessing over ministry and provision and all this great stuff. And then at one point, this young lady comes walking up and she's kind of like, she kind of like makes her way up. She's, she's walking very carefully. And she comes up and she shares this story that when she was younger, God had spoke to her and said, I want to, I'm calling you to go and be an evangelist for India, to go all over the country. It's like 2.3% Christian. There's barely any Christians. I want you to go ever. It's really hard to be a follower of Jesus there. And I want you to go everywhere and share the gospel in all these communities and walk India sharing the gospel. And I was like, oh, great. I, I'm into that. I can pray for that all day long. Let's pray. She's like, but there's a problem. Somewhere along the line, I, I, I've developed this, this bend in my back, this twist in my spine. And now every step is painful. I can't move forward without like excruciating pain. And I just, I need healing. And I was like, ooh. But my buddy Wade is just this guy from Arkansas. He's larger than life. He's amazing. He's like, great, let's pray. We're gonna pray for healing. And I'm like, okay. So the two of us would go and I'm, I put my hand kind of in the center of her upper back and I'm just like praying, like, Lord, this seems like something that you would care about. Like this seems like something, I mean, just baby Faith, mustard seed size faith. And in that moment, I remember God's voice kind of cutting through like, I'm going to heal this woman today. And I was like, Lord, I just don't even know if I have enough in me to believe you for that. Help me, Lord, in my unbelief. And we prayed. It was done. And I kind of like stepped back and I was kind of going to do this typical Christian thing and like, go like, oh, have blessings, you know. But my buddy Wade's just like, do you feel any different? I'm like, Wade, I don't want to know. Do you feel any different? I will never, never, never forget the expression on that woman's face because it was the expression of pure shock mixed with joy. As she like looked up and straightened up her shoulders and I could tell she was as blown away as I was. God healed her in that moment. She reached up in the air and she started jumping around. 
Because God believed in what I suddenly believed in. My hopes, my dreams came into alignment with God's hopes, God's dreams. And you know what happens when that happens? He does stuff. Now, I, I don't understand why it is that he chooses in some moments. I don't know why Trevor didn't get healed. I don't know why. But there's something that happens when we as a people begin to believe again in God's ability to heal and restore. When we as his people begin to live lives of faith and friends, our city needs our faith. Your communities need your faith. Your school needs your faith. Your workplace needs your faith. Your roommate needs your faith. This is where the impossible happens when we come into alignment with God's heart, God's purposes, and he gets put on display and there's risk involved. And there's gonna be times when things don't work the way that we think they're gonna work, but that doesn't mean that we give up, that just means we learn to step in further. And this, this is the call to God's church today. Will we be centurions? Will we have shocking, amazing faith? Will we believe in the invisible God? that still loves and cares for our city, will we be those people? I'm, I'm keenly aware of the fact that when I say the word faith, that likely this room kind of splits into two camps. There's one camp that I might call like camp disappointment. And I get that. I've been that place. I've lived in that camp. You prayed for something somewhere along the lines and God did not answer it the way that you thought he was gonna answer it. And you've walked around with a heaviness and a disappointment in God and maybe a little in yourself and you haven't even really known what to do with it. My friends, there is something about believing in God's perspective and God's power that calls us into belief, but also humility. I want to invite you, if you find yourself in camp disappointment, that God might be calling you back. Is there a step of faith right now in your life that God is calling you back into? a place of disappointment. Maybe there's a, there's a family member who's walked away and you have been praying for years. God's saying like, I'm calling you back into faith. I'm calling you to come believe again. But there's another camp. There's this, there's this other camp. I might call it like camp safety. There's no getting around it. Faith is risky. Faith is costly. God will call us to go beyond what we're comfortable with. And in fact, that's often where he does his best work. 
Is there a step of faith you need God's courage to step into? And I don't know what that looks like. It could be so different for so many, so many different people in this room. Is there, I mean, maybe you're sitting at home right now and God is saying like, it's time. It's time for you to step back into this building. And that's risk for you. I want to encourage you, like, believe him for that. Listen to his faith call in your life. Or maybe, maybe you're here, or maybe we're, you're, you're listening online, and, and like, you know that God's been calling you to like, start like, giving to the church, but you're like, Lord, when you give to me, then I'll give it back to you. My friends, that's not how faith works. It's actually the opposite. Faith says, Lord, I believe you. I believe that you will provide. Or maybe, and this is probably the toughest one, you're like so many of us, like, you're tired. And there's something about following Jesus that you know is going to cost you time, cost you space on your calendar. And Jesus is saying, give it to me first and see if I don't give you all the strength, all the energy, all the life that you need. Literally, the scriptures challenge us in the areas of finances and time to say, like, test me. See if I won't give you back more than you can give me. Test me in this. This is faith. I want to invite you to stand up to your feet. If you're comfortable, go ahead and just extend your hands. Open up your hands. There is those two camps in this room, and I just, I know there's probably more too, but for myself, I just felt like they landed on my heart so heavy this week. And you're out there, and you're in one of those two camps, and right now, God is literally calling you forward. So we're going to open up these, this front space and I want to encourage you to take a step of faith. To come forward and get prayed for. Maybe you're in that camp where it's like, I, I feel the disappointment. I need God to heal this place of disappointment. I need God to meet me in this place of disappointment. My friends, he will. Come forward, be prayed for. Or maybe you're in the camp of safety and you're just like, I need God's courage to do the thing he's called me to do. Friends, he will. He'll meet you. He'll give you courage. But one of the biggest things that we can do is take that first courageous step. It's one of the things I love about having prayer up front is that it requires risk. Lord Jesus, I pray over my friends right now. I ask that you would meet them exactly where they're at. That you would call them to take that next step, one foot in front of the other. You're not asking for this radical leap. You're asking for the next step. We thank you, Jesus, for meeting us in that place. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts. Put your finger on those places in our soul, the places that we're wrestling with. 
silence the enemy's voice is trying to distract us. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. Increase our faith. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. Increase our faith. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.